So this past week was very full on. Um, I know we had the long weekend, which was great. We, we spent, um, we went overnight to Ballarat and the boys got to go to Creole Castle and pretend to be knights and, you know, they had a blast. But, um, we came back and, um, we, we were a bit run down because we hadn't slept well and all that. And so Joshi had a little cough, which, um, he's thankfully, it seems all better now. And, um, I had a bit of a scratchy throat, but I've also recovered and so grateful for that. But, it was also a full on week. Um, cause just there's, in addition to the meetings and the various, uh, work that I had, it was emotionally, uh, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually a bit of a tough week. Not too bad, but here's what happened. So on Tuesday, the union, um, office of the Seventh day Adventist church in Australia, which I belong to, um, posted this picture on social media. Just, you know, happy to have their administrators back in the office in person for the for the annual kind of council meetings and so forth. Now, um, you can see that I took this screenshot yesterday afternoon, so there might the numbers might be different now, but as of yesterday, there were 660 comments and 24 shares. Um, so you can say it kind of blew up. And the reason being that um, there's something very apparent in this picture, which is the lack of diversity. Uh, in the administration level of the church, especially when it comes to gender. Now, there are many multi-layered reasons as to why that is, and I don't want to get into all of that now. But suffice to say, there have been there has been concerted effort by many over the years to bring about change, um, and some of that change has already begun. Um, for example, last year, the Australian Union appointed Pastor Lindell Peterson as a part-time associate ministerial secretary. Um, this, she's the first female to hold um, such a position. And the Victorian Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church also appointed Pastor Proshka um, Renyakini Faith as the first female associate minister associate secretary for for uh, the church here in Victoria. And we're going to be having her as a guest speaker down, down the road. And Pastor Lindell has already spoken for us, I think, last year as well. Uh, or was it earlier this year? Um, she has spoken for us a couple of times. And so, yeah, there's already really good changes happening. Um, the record this week published uh, a really great article by uh, Darius and Adita Yankovic in, um, about the biblical basis for women uh, in ministry. And I highly recommend that you read it. Um, it's, it's not exhaustive, but it's a good introduction to this topic. Also, a scholarship was established by the Australian Union, and um, I'm I'm part of the Women in Ministry Advisory, and it was an incredible um, blessing to hear um, that the scholarship, which was established last year to encourage women studying theology, um, that uh, Lindell and the other people involved in the scholarship did the interviews, and they've given six uh, women scholarships um, this year to study theology. And so um, we got to hear their stories and who these women are. And it was incredibly encouraging um, to have that meeting and to, um, it's a blessing to be in that advisory and to be able to recommend changes as well. But you know, some would say all these great initiatives are not enough. And then there are others who would, who would actually be very unhappy that I'm even talking about this and who would say, this is too much. Um, and some who would say, and I you know, have heard this many times that um, I, sh- I should not even be in ministry as a woman. 
And of course, this is not something that is unique just to me or women in ministry. This happens in other workplaces. And we've seen that this week in the news with, with the sports um, industry and um, in the sports journalism industry um, with Tom Morris's derogatory comments about a female colleague and um, the various things that have that have resulted uh, from that. And, you know, uh, you might have heard about it in the news. The truth is there are a myriad of opinions and about what equality is and what it means and how to achieve it. And sometimes the most opinionated people are the ones who have no idea <clears throat> what it actually feels like to be on the other side. And I'm incredibly privileged to have influence, to have a seat at the table um, within several committees in the church where decisions and recommendations are made. But the truth is, it's not always easy to speak up. One, I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly examining my heart to see what's, what's motivating, right? It, is it bitterness or self-promotion or, or a genuine desire to promote biblical justice and equality and theology and mission? And there's also that fear of what will people think if I speak up, right? Because no matter how pure my intentions, will others see me as self-promoting and agenda-driven? Will others dismiss me? Will I jeopardize my reputation, my family, the future of my local church by speaking up and potentially being labeled? These are some of the fears. And of course, these fears are not all based on reality. You know, many of the administrators and leaders of the Adventist Church um, in Victoria, Australia, South Pacific, and, uh, and, and the world are extremely supportive of women in ministry and of me specifically. But, right, that doesn't mean that I still don't have these fears and that I'm still pondering, should I speak up? Should I say something? Sometimes I don't have a choice. Sometimes I am the only woman in the room uh, who is a local church pastor. So I get asked point blank what I think. Then I have to swallow this ginormous lump in my throat and pray that I can do justice to this question because I want to advance rather than hinder the work. And it's terrifying because I don't like rocking the boat. You guys who know me know I like following the rules, right? I like being liked. I don't like championing something that people have very strong opinions against. I don't like being yelled at while I'm preaching, um, saying that I should, I should be ashamed of myself because I'm a woman in ministry. And um, for, for those of you who were present when that happened several years ago in Melbourne, you remember how I responded. I broke down in tears. And I, I wish I could stay silent on this issue and, and let others fight for me. But the truth is, others aren't always fighting. And the truth is, sometimes I am the only one who can speak or who will speak. I think about whenever I'm, I have this, you know, dilemma, right? And, and so many times I've, 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 deleted, I've written and deleted emails and, or text messages. So many times I've, I've, I haven't spoken. But then when I do speak, it's because I'm compelled by thinking about that young lady out there who, or any woman out there who may be hearing God's call to ministry but is afraid. And I have to make space for her. And so I speak even though I really don't want to. And I also speak because I think about our history of being part of a Protestant movement 
of a priesthood of all believers who protest anything that contradicts the Bible. And the Bible talks about justice every 15 verses in the Bible. God cares about this very much. And I think about our ethos of advocating present truth that our, our church, you know, we're all about present truth and how God is constantly doing new things and revealing new things to us. And I think about our mission of preparing the world for Jesus' second coming. And with all this combined, right, I can't stop talking about and speaking up when, when given the opportunity or when um, pressed upon it like this week because um, it's just too important. It's more important than my fear of what others think about me. But you know, that doesn't stop the turmoil that's inside. And sometimes I succumb to that fear. Sometimes I am very silent. Sometimes I just smile politely and let it go when people, good people with good intentions, make offhand comments that actually make me feel like I don't belong, despite the fact that I've been in ministry for 17 years. Because sometimes trying to help them understand is exhausting, and I just don't want to fight that fight. The number of times I wished that others would speak, and feeling so disappointed when they didn't. And I understand that they have things to lose, that they don't want to die on this hill, that they're afraid to. I get that, but then I wish they were willing to take this on. And I'm so grateful for my husband, Roy, who has chosen this as a hill that he's willing to die on and has died on before. The number of times I've listened to external and internal voices that say that I'm not worthy. The number of times I've had to return to God for his voice to reset my compass the number of times I've wanted to quit, but didn't because my calling is not from people, but from God. All this I share very honestly with you because I just wanted to be, um, to share with you this topic of we have this real fear of what other people will think of us, right? And a lot of times it drives us or, or it limits us. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who feels this way. It might not be with this specific circumstance, but have you ever felt afraid of following God's call for your life because of what others might think? It might be something very small, like praying in public or revealing that you're a Christian or something bigger, like changing careers or moving or doing something that others would judge you for. Or have you ever yielded to the pressure and the expectations of others trying to please, but then felt incredible burnout and resentment because no matter what, how much you did, right, it just seemed never to be enough. And how can we let go of what others think? How can we be free from this and cultivate courage to listen and obey God? I think the first step is recognizing that we have many voices drowning, drowning out God's voice. And this is a new series I'm doing, so um, by, by no means am I going to be comprehensive today. But I'm just introducing uh, all of us to this topic. And the first step is recognizing that there are many voices, right? Whether we realize it or not, 
we we follow the drum of many voices, and so no wonder we're exhausted, trying to please and running around and and lost sometimes. We are the product of our upbringing and our education and our experiences and our culture. We are who we are today due to um, multiple factors. And so we have the voices of our parents, right? Even, even if we disagree with them, their voices still stay in our heads. The voices of our teachers, our friends, our boss, our colleagues, the media, social media, so many voices telling us what to think, how to feel, what, how to be, what to do. Even the voices in church, right, are all different. And they all claim to be God's voice, like experts, ventriloquists, right? But they're actually just projecting their voice onto their picture of God. The truth is, there's really only one voice that's God's. There's only one. But in order to identify and, and, and distinguish that voice from others, it takes time and effort to really listen. And I think that's the problem. One of the problems is who has time to listen these days, right? We're, we're always in a rush. We're always thinking about the next thing. We're always distracted. And God is saying, I want you to listen. And I think the art of listening is something that we are not taught very well. Um, we almost have to learn it on our own. And God uh, and the Bible talks so much about sitting and listening to Him. And we don't like sitting because it's, it, feel, it feels so counterproductive, right? And we grew up in a, in a society, in a world where productivity is praised and rewarded, right? You work hard, you produce results, you get a raise, right? Or you clean the house and you cook a wonderful meal, you get praised. And so there's, there's um, instant affirmation for productivity. Whereas who's going to praise you for sitting, right? And listening in silence to God, right? Who's going to give you that instant reward? And, and I think, and this is, um, I think one of the reasons why parenting is so difficult, right? Because in parenting, you give and you give and you give and you get nothing back sometimes. In fact, not just nothing, worse than nothing, you get tantrums and whinging um, back, it, and, and, and it's so not rewarding because you just don't get that instant praise and, and affirmation that we're so used to when we work hard and when we put a lot of effort into something. And I think that's also why being a Christian is so hard because it's so difficult for us to stop working, right? To, to actually take a Sabbath and to rest in God's work, right? It's so difficult for us to, to pause from um, doing and actually be with God. But God says over and over and over again that he's calling us to actually pause, to stop, right? To not be productive, to actually just listen, to sit and do the heart work, right? It's still work, but it's work that no one else can see, work that no one else can affirm, only between you and God, where you're listening and identifying the voices and, and seeing which one is God's and choosing to to focus on that and tuning the others out. God calls us to a different path a lot of times and what the voices, the automatic time, this was the message God wanted me to share. How can we know when, when something is God's voice? Like I said, sometimes he just kind of 
unsettles us. And then we feel peace when we, we, we discover and listen and obey to God's voice. And that's one way of knowing. But also he tends to grab our attention when he speaks, even when he don't, when we don't recognize that it's him at first. After Jesus's death, the disciples were very discouraged. And two of the disciples, not the original 12, but two others were walking away from Jerusalem, going back home to, to Emmaus. And they were discouraged. They were exhausted and, and they're walking home. And someone comes along and they don't recognize who it is, but someone comes along and starts talking to them, talking about the, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and how the Messiah actually had to suffer and, and explaining the scriptures to them. And they don't realize it's Jesus until later on when they share a meal together and Jesus breaks the bread. And when he breaks the bread and he gives it to them, it says that they realized it was just, it was Jesus. And even though the, the passage doesn't spell it out, I believe that the reason why they knew, knew that it was Jesus was because when he broke that bread and he handed it to them, they saw the nail scars on his, on his wrist. And they saw that he was breaking this bread and giving it to them, that he had spent time with them. Right, two two people who were not listening to God and and discouraged and completely um, lost faith in Jesus and had walked away from Jerusalem. God cared about them and believed in them and and took time out of His resurrected time to come and just be with them to talk with them and 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 open up the scriptures to them and break bread just for them, and that's. The experience, the aha moment we get to experience when we hear God's voice and realize this isn't just, you know, someone else's bread. This isn't just bread someone else has broken. This is bread that God has broken for me, giving it to me. And I can see that he has died for me, right? That he cares for me. And and when you have that conviction in your heart, there is no doubt that this is God speaking. And the experience, it says uh, in Luke Chapter 24, verse 32, the disciples, when they realize it had been Jesus, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? When God speaks to us, there is this kind of stirring in our hearts that feels like a spark. Um, and sometimes that stirring, it feels like a storm. David, who was a shepherd, poet, warrior who became king, story for another time, he hears God's voice as a thunder. Psalm chapter 29, verses 3 to 5. David says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. God's voice can be, on the one hand, a, a spark that burns and grows um, into passion and fire in our hearts, but it can also be a devastating power that destroys us, like a lion's roar that wakes us up and realizes what a fool we've been. Right? Or it might be a gentle whisper. One of my favorite stories is a story of God's messenger, Elijah, who, despite having witnessed and participated in God literally sending fire down from heaven and creating um, a revival amongst God's people, is afraid of one person and runs away and um, is just so depressed that he just wants to die. 
and God comes to him and ministers to him and just, you know, feeds him. Literally, an angel comes and gives him food and water and just lets him sleep. And, and then God comes to him and says, hey, I want to talk to you. And when he goes to where God has designated, it says in 1 Kings 19, verses 11 to 14, then a great and powerful winds tore through the mountains apart, shot at the rocks before the Lord, right? This is kind of like David's, the voice that David hears. But the Lord was not in the wind. Because God doesn't always talk to us in the same way. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, right, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And I identify with Elijah, um, you know, in the sense that we can listen to the voices, um, the voice of, of threat, right? This is This is what... Queen Jezebel, who's trying to kill him, the threat, you know, where she's angry with Elijah and she's breathing threats. And, and that, that threat is now speaking so loudly in his mind that that's kind of the reality that he has grabs, hold, held on to, right? But this is actually not true when he says, you know, the Israelites have um, rejected your covenant and they've killed all your prophets and I'm the only one left. This is actually not true because he has just come from a revival where the Israelites have turned their hearts back to God. And actually, they killed the prophets of Baal, which is why Jezebel is so upset. And, you know, this is what happens in our, in our minds, is that Satan loves to put all these voices in our heads that confuse us and that make us believe something that isn't actually the reality. And so then God responds. I like how God responds to Elijah. God says, go back the way you came to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shapat from Abel Meloah to succeed you as prophet. So in other words, God says, hey, I've got work for you to do. I still believe in you. And by the way, I'm going to give you a helper and someone who's going to take over your ministry. And then he says um, in verse 18, by the way, I have 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Here was Elijah thinking he was all alone. And God says, you're not alone. You're not alone. I have 7,000 faithful followers just like you. And one of them is going to, uh, named Elisha, is going to be um, your helper, your partner. And then your successor. The voice of God gives us the right perspective, right? So that we can then have the right sense of identity and the right sense of reality and mission and purpose. To cultivate courage to let go of what others think, we have to know the truth. I find it really helpful when I'm spiraling into anxiety or the negative thoughts. And, and when I'm listening to other voices, to ask God in prayer, God, what is the lie that Satan wants me to believe? Right? What is the lie? 
and to sit there and listen as God reveals those lies to me. To as, as I ask God that question, right? This week even, God, what is the lie that Satan wants me to believe? And the lie is that you're not good enough, right? And I ask God, what else? What other lies have I believed? All the well, there's the lie that I'm not that I don't belong. Or the lie that I have to do more to be accepted. Or the lie that I'm all alone. Or the lie that um, things will never change. Right? These are all lies that Satan wants me to believe so that I can be discouraged. So that I stop doing God's work. So then I ask God, God, what is the truth? What is the truth? Because Jesus said, if you hold on to my teachings, then you are my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. That's John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. See, the truth, God's truth, sets us free from the bondage of those voices that we listen to and those voices that we're afraid of, the voices that motivate us instead of God motivating us. And so what is the truth? And I just want to share a couple of Bible verses. There's so much, but I just narrowed it down to a few. This is the truth. First John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I want you to think about this passage. Look at what it's saying. It's saying that we are right now children of God, right? God already thinks that we are good enough. That's why he died for us, because we are precious in his sight, because he thinks we're worthy. So we don't have to prove ourselves to earn God's love. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he said, if you are the son of God, then do this. And Jesus said, no. Because when Jesus was, was getting baptized, he heard that voice from God uh, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus didn't feel the need to prove himself to Satan or to anybody else. When you look at Jesus' life, he had incredibly, incredibly good boundaries. And we talked about this um, in a previous sermon. How Jesus had great boundaries that he could say no. That he didn't feel compelled to please everybody. Right? He, he followed God's will and God's will alone. When we realize and, and accept and embrace that we are children of God, we don't have to try to please others. We don't, we are, it's exhausting, right? It's, it's not even possible. Um, you will you will burn out and uh, be very unhappy, but we, we we strive anyway so much because we think this will this will um, we feed off of it and and um, it's it's something that many of us are motivated by. But God says, "Hey, you are my child. I love you as you are. Right? You don't have to be afraid, and we don't have to earn His love or our place in God's family because He already loves us." And so whatever we do for God then, we do because we want to, not because we have to. And whatever people say or think about us, it doesn't have the same weight as before. 
Because what others think or say about us doesn't determine our worth or our identity. We are not who others think we are. We are who God thinks we are. And we have to remind ourselves of this truth constantly. Here's another Bible verse. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption as legal children. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, I've read this many times before, but it's a verse that I, if, if we could all just live with one memorized passage, this is it for me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us continuously loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus loves us. Write it down. Say it out loud. Repeat it. Sing it. Embrace this identity as child of God, legally adopted into his family. And when you are adopted into a family, you take on the family name. Oftentimes, individuals in the Bible literally took on a new name when, when they realized and accepted and embraced the grace of God. For example, Jacob was a man who had cheated his brother out of his um, birthright, his older brother Esau. And Esau was furious and was trying to kill him. So Jacob runs away from home. And for many years, he is in exile. And then finally, God tells him, hey, it's time to go back. So he's on his way back. And then a messenger comes and says, hey, Esau heard you're coming and is coming to meet you with 400 men. Okay. So now Jacob is terrified. And so he prays. And he's and and, and um, if you look at his prayer in Genesis 32, um, he says, O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I don't need my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted so you can really see the dilemma here. You know, on the one hand, he's clinging to God's promise, right? God's the one who told him to come back. God had promised that his descendants will prosper. And so he has that promise, but he has this real imminent danger, right? Of his brother and his 400 men coming. And so all night long, Jacob is, is wrestling between faith and fear, faith and fear, faith and fear. And when uh, a stranger in the in the darkness, you know, comes, Jacob thinks it's one of his enemies. It's maybe this is one of the men of, of Esau. And he starts wrestling. He tackles and wrestles this stranger. But as Jacob is fighting this man, he realizes this is not an ordinary human being. And he realizes this is God. And so Jacob then holds, cling, clings on tire, which I love about Jacob because you would think if I realized that I was wrestling God, I would let go and, 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 and fall 
face down on the ground and, you know, um, just be awestruck. But Jacob clings to God and wrestles him even more and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And I love how God responds. God says, hey, what is your name? And he knows what his name is, but he's trying to get Jacob to realize something. And so Jacob says, my name is Jacob. And Jacob in, in Hebrew, it means supplanter, usurper, someone who seizes power by manipulation, right? Because he's afraid. And so he, he takes things into his own hands. That, that's the kind of man he was his whole life. And God says to him, and I'll put this on the screen for you. Genesis 32, God says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it's because I saw God face to face. And yet my life was spared. Jacob wrestled with God, thinking that God was his enemy someone to overcome. But the truth was that God was already on his side. The truth was God had already promised protection and was protecting him and was with him. Jacob didn't need to wrestle a blessing out of God. God had already blessed him. God had blessed him like 14 years before that when Jacob literally had nothing and was running away, sinful, right? Guilty. And God had come to him in a dream and said, I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to bring you back to this place. God already blessed him. And we do this so much. We struggle so much to to win God's blessing. But God has already promised us a future. He has already promised us salvation. He has already given us what, what we are so desperately striving for. And when we finally understand and accept this, right? Then we too get to rest in God's grace and then live differently, that we no longer are working for you know, God's approval or other people's approval, but we are now in the security of our identity as children of God, right? Then able to give and be a blessing out of our free will, not compulsion, not um, you know, because we feel required to, not because you know, of guilt and shame, but because of love, because of the freedom that we have as children of God. God said that we too get a new name. You know, Jacob was given the name of Israel. We too are given a new name. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. I'm fascinated by this idea that God is going to give me a new name, right? Because he has adopted me into his family. And so I get that new name. And even though I don't know what that new name is, the Bible promises me that I am now already a child of God and I can live as such. Saul was another uh, individual who's, who got a name change. He was a persecutor of Christians. But once he uh, had a vision of Jesus, he becomes Paul, a powerful Christian missionary. And you know, it took the church 14 years to recognize his call to apostleship. 
And he often had to kind of defend himself against people who, who criticized him. But he had such a clear sense of identity and calling in God. When he wrote to the church in churches in Galatia, he says, Paul, right? His new name. Paul, an apostle, right? He's not ashamed to call himself what he is. Sent not from men nor by man, by, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God the Father. And it goes on to say in verse 10, Am I not trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I love Paul's courage, right? And he's, this courage didn't come overnight. He spent three years in the Arabian desert um, after his conversion because both Jews and Christians alike you know, didn't really believe in him and, and, and um, were very skeptical of him and, and discredited him. He spent three years in the desert. Then he spent many years of, you know, traveling from place to place. It took time, I'm sure, for the identity as Paul now, child of God, to become so strong that no matter what others said or thought of him, he could be his authentic, authentic self. You know, Dr. Brittany Brown is a researcher who has spent 20 years studying courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy. And in her research, she discovered that those who live with courage, right, she calls them wholehearted, people who live wholeheartedly, that they're not afraid to be themselves, to show their imperfections rather than hiding behind masks. They were willing to be vulnerable, to risk criticism, because they believed that they were worthy of love, even though they were flawed. And based on her find, findings, she created 10 guideposts for this wholehearted living. And I'll just share it briefly on the screen for you. And you can see that the very first guidepost, right, of, of the 10 guideposts for wholehearted living is cultivating authenticity by letting go of what people think. And, you know, and this is secular research. This is um, something that she, Dr. Brene Brown has studied for 20 years based on many interviews and and um and readings and research and um talks and this is this is her saying hey when you let go of what other people think of you right and when you're honest about your mistakes honest about your flaws right vulnerable and willing to be honest instead of pretending to have it all together right that that kind of honesty and authenticity it actually gives you incredible freedom to live with courage. When we're honest to God, when we're honest with others and ourselves, especially about who we really are, and we're okay with who we really are because our mistakes are not what define us. Other people's praise or criticism is not what defines us. Our creator is who defines us, and he calls us his own. We are flawed, but we are loved. God knows us exactly as we are, right? All of who we are, better than we know ourselves. We are fully known, yet fully loved. And there's nothing more healing for the heart. This is a quote that I'm paraphrasing. There's nothing more healing for the human heart than to be fully known, yet fully loved. And that's what God gives us, that 
strong, everlasting, nothing can separate us from kind of love and that security and identity from which we can then live in this world and proclaim who he is. Proverbs 29, verse 25. Sorry, this sermon has gone on long. Um, Last verse. Proverbs 29, verse 25. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. I pray that as we enter the journey of identifying the various voices and listening to God's voice and identifying His truth for us, I pray that as we go through this journey, that we will have the courage, right? Cultivate and discover the courage, and it's a step-by-step process. I'm still going through it. But I pray that we would then have the courage and to discover the freedom and the peace that come from being our authentic selves, being who we were created to be, living out the life that God has created us for. And as a result, that we will find incredible community and connection and meaning and satisfaction and peace. And most of all, that that sense that, you know what? We are God's children. And we don't have to prove ourselves. And we can just have the freedom to serve out of that security. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to identify the lies that Satan wants us to believe. Help us to identify the voices, good voices, good intentioned voices right? of, of everyone that we listen to them so much because they sound good and they are good and we care about these people. But Father, help us to ultimately listen to you, to your voice and to follow you not because we feel obligated, not because we feel guilt or shame, but because we feel incredible freedom in your love to serve. And so, Father, I pray that we would all experience this kind of freedom and this peace and the purpose that now come from having the security in you. I pray in your son's name. Amen.